You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. And welcome to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. And if you guys need a special battery, whether it's a regular battery or uh, something special that's very rare and hard to find, stop by your local Interstate Battery retail location and talk with a battery expert. These guys are very knowledgeable in the products that they sell and they can get you what you want, when you want it, whether it's a truck battery, whether it's a special battery for like a rangefinder or trail camera batteries, any type of battery, these guys are able to get it for you. So stop into an uh, interstate battery retail location, talk with a specialist, or if you want to learn about the culture, the company of interstate batteries, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate batteries, outrageously dependable. High tech may be cool, but craftsmanship is king. And I want to highlight a family business called Mercy Supply. Mercy Supply is a leatherwork and canvas and wax duck clothing company. They make accessories like bags, wallets, and aprons. In fact, I gave Rusty a call and he put together a custom order for me. I've got 60s vintage camo trimmed out in oxblood leather and copper rivets. This apron just is sick looking. I love it. It's bomb-proof construction, stitched really tight, and you're never going to be able to beat it up. And actually, the more that you use it, the more that you abuse it, the better it wears. So head on over to mercysupply.com. Everything is made in Byron Center, Michigan, hand-done in the good old U.S. of A. If you tell him that Huntivor sent you, he won't know what you're talking about because I didn't tell him that I was going to make him a commercial. But anyway, head over to mercysupply.com. Their stuff is built to stand up. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast. Powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 49. Hunter's hobby becomes food source amid pandemic and non-hunters are taking notice. Freelance writer Sarah Engstrand went on a journey writing an article outside of her normal scope of life. She wrote the article, Hunters See Their Hobby as Food Source Amid COVID-19 Pandemic. Not a stranger to food and the culinary world, she understands the language of feeding self and others. She took the opportunity to talk to several hunters and anglers about their wild food supply. Noticing the shorter the food chain, the less these food shortages had an effect. Join Nick as he talks to a non-hunter who has noticed the bright side of acquiring your own meat. Well, hey folks, welcome to another episode here on The Huntivore. 
Uh, beautiful day here in Michigan. And again, we're finding someone down in Texas to give a uh, to have a chat with. I'm here with freelance writer, a self-proclaimed foodie. She travels the world. She's an editor and works with communications. I am sitting uh, digitally across from Sarah Ingstrand. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for taking some time out of your day to hang out with us. Hi, Nick. I'm so happy to be here. This is very exciting for me. So being a freelance writer, you're not anchored down to any place or anything. Tell me about being a, a someone who just writes articles for a living. Uh, I love it. It's funnily enough, we call ourselves hunters in a way because we, you know, we hunt for our dinner too. It's a lot of work. You have to find the stories and then you're sort of chasing a story and then chasing a publication that might might maybe want the story and might maybe want to pay pay you for it. But the freedom is great. Um, so I actually spent the last six months living in England um, because you're right. I'm not tied down to anywhere specifically, but now I live in Texas. Gotcha. Starting to put some roots down down there. I'm, I'm trying to. My father lives here. So does my brother. So I figured it's a good place to start. Well, good deal. Uh, so where did you grow up? I mean, you've been all over the place, but uh, where did you grow up? I grew up on uh, in a small town on Long Island in New York. It's called Northport. And, you know, it's like a one-stop stop sign uh, town by the water, and it's just a cute little town. Awesome. Awesome. So you went from small town uh, Newport there in Long Island, and eventually you found yourself in doing some time in Hong Kong. I shouldn't say doing some time. Um, you were actually working working in Hong Kong. Uh, Sometimes some... it felt like prison. <laughs> Sometimes it felt like lockdown there. Uh, talk to us about Hong Kong, you know, being from, from rural Michigan and a lot of us being from small towns, like a huge city like that way off in the East just seems so alluring. Tell us about what Hong Kong's like. Hong Kong is amazing. I honestly, you know, it's a weird time right now for China, but so I want to be shouting about how incredible Hong Kong is and how really anyone who has the opportunity should go there. It is this incredible blend of old and new and east and west. And there's an amazing amount of creativity there from the small businesses to the artists. You know, and the food is incredible. I, I honestly don't have enough good things to say about it. You can be in the middle of one of the most densely packed cities in the world. And then you jump on a bus or a taxi and 20 minutes later you're in the jungle or on a beautiful beach it's it's amazing when i think of like the the cooking aspect because then I, I was looking through some of your articles that you were writing about your time there with the different chefs um and different restaurants specifically in hong kong uh you, we think of france when it comes to like technical work like you do things mm. like there are like five sauces that you have to put to memory and that's like that french base so if you were a chef and you wanted to get your technique down you head there um but if yeah, you want to get into the experience of of making your own breads or like making your own pasta like you know you look at something like italy like these are just like things that we've as uh, a society or at least as a world has said go to these places when it comes to uh, cooking, but then there's Hong Kong where like it is a East versus or East, East meets West. Is it, what's the feel there? I feel like from reading your articles, it's more like the frontier of like 
what can we do with food as more of an experimentation? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I think it's really important to remember that for the global West, yeah, France and Italy are the cornerstones of our cuisine and our culinary traditions. But you know, China is one of the oldest civilizations in the world. And so their cuisine has been evolving independently of our own for thousands of years. And China is also massive. Um, and so the Hong Kong style of cooking is going to be and cuisine is completely different from what you're going to find in the Sichuan province or, you know, in Shanghai. There are provinces that each have their own style of cooking. And there are people who are experts on it all. And I do not pretend to be one myself. Um, but yeah, Hong Kong, you get people coming from all over the world. And a lot of these chefs have trained in top Michelin starred kitchens in France, in Italy, across Europe. And they come to Hong Kong and all of a sudden, outside of those parameters, they're able to play. And it's amazing because Hong Kong, the community of Hong Kong has a very high bar when it comes to restaurants, you know, local people and expatriates alike. We know good food. We want good food. And so, you know, impress us, wow us. And that can mean like, you know, sticky rice and pork belly that's just done phenomenally well. It can mean yakitori that, again, is just done incredibly well. Or it can mean a three Michelin starred meal overlooking the city skyline that's going to cost you like a small mortgage to eat. Um, these chefs, especially when they work for bigger groups, there's really no limit to what they can get. You know, they can afford the best produce, the best um, you know, meats and products from around the world, not saying that's sustainable, but for some of these big hotel groups, they fly stuff in every single day. It's not unusual to have fresh produce coming in from Japan, you know, daily. So you do have a lot of room to play. And if you're outside of a Michelin, I have a lot of feelings about the Michelin guide, <laughs> but if you're outside of those parameters, you can experiment and you can get creative and you can do some really cool things. And so Hong Kong is a great place to go to find some like vanguard type of people. That's really cool. It's, it is one of those things where, you know, we're, we're pushing our boundaries here as, as home home cooks and home chefs. And we've, we've done our best to try and get uh, either growing our own produce or even, you know, using just our best judgment, going to farmer's markets or, or whatever, and try to get as much um, locally sourced stuff that we can. And then, yeah, you to, you know, just either see it either through the internet or, you know, hearing from folks like you that it's like, yeah, when you get a conglomerate of these top-notch chefs, like, yeah, it's, you know, we're going to, we're going to make you a dish that is the pinnacle, that is the prestigious uh, dish that we can make. Um, and it's fun to try and mimic some of that just with, with what we've got. But yeah, it's definitely, like you mentioned, sometimes it's you know, not quite sustainable for, yeah, to have a big jumbo jetliner coming in with, with fresh things in daily. But, you know, on the other hand, some of the most interesting meals I've had are from those chefs that are focused on local ingredients. So there's one restaurant in Hong Kong. Uh, the chef is Max Levy. He's actually from New Orleans. And he had a restaurant in Beijing, and then he opened in Hong Kong. And nobody likes Chinese beef. You know, they import beef from Australia. has got some great cattle. Or, you know, Brazil. It's much less expensive. 
And he said, no. He said, I'm going to use this stringy, almost gamey Chinese beef that's been raised on like, you know, not this pristine, amazing grass. And he goes, and I'm going to figure out how to make it delicious. And he did. It's all in the way that you use the ingredients that you have. So while some places are, you know, just nuts with their ingredients, there is a movement in Hong Kong for people to really be looking at uh, produce grown in Hong Kong. There's a couple of restaurants that use local ingredients and uh, and local livestock, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. I think I just I'm hearing some people in the upper peninsula here in Michigan just hooting and hollering because, yeah, their their bucks live in cedar swamps. And it's amazing oh, how wow. you can get the most gamey critter you can get out of some of those cedar swamps. It, I mean, it tastes like a cedar board if you uh, <laughs> if you cook it too long. So, yeah, I'm sure they're already saying like, amen, I hear what that chef's going through. Yeah, I mean, he's amazing. He also does cool stuff with fish, like with aging fish. Like, he is very experimental. So his place, it's called Okra. Um, and hopefully it'll still be open after this. So you can get back, yeah, when all the so, per- yeah, well, all the gates are back out. open again. You can There's go visit. a lot of cool stuff happening in Hong Kong, and I encourage anyone and everyone with the opportunity to go eat everything. <laughs> well, good deal. Well, Sarah, one of the big reasons why I called you on um, was as I as I'm going through, I'm constantly looking for for recipes that I can play with for uh, different ways that I can use my wild game and come across the website all all recipes. And on the top, uh, right there with the article page, was uh, the headline here: Hunters see their hobby as food source amid COVID nineteen pandemic, and like I see that, and as a hunter myself, I'm like, duh. Like I got that. I make you know that makes a lot of sense to me. But it was interesting as we as we went through as I went through this article, um, you had interviewed three different folks down there in Texas and grasped this idea of people taking charge of their own food acquisition and how this moment in time has been chaotic for folks who maybe are a little disconnected from from their food source and how there's a stark contrast between the two you not being a hunt or a, a hunter yourself am i am i correct yeah completely <laughs> yeah so being outside this world i'm sure this is completely foreign um i want to get your reaction to these individuals that you were you had a chance to talk to uh where did the idea come from to write this article it was actually very interesting. I was talking to all recipes about um, about a feature on Americans who hunt for their meat because five years ago I drove cross country with my sister, and we met a couple of families. You know, we were staying at Airbnbs, and I loved getting to chat to people. And a couple of these families hunted for their meat, and they were telling us about the lotteries, and you know, we can shoot two moose, or you know, this or that, and one house was in the middle of nowhere. We had like a car breakdown. We couldn't leave. And so the family shared this amazing stew that they made with us from, um, I think it was, I think there might've been moose meat in that one. I I don't remember, but it was so delicious and it was so nice. And they were telling us about going out and hunting and, uh, and their freezers and how they don't really go to the grocery store. And I thought it was so interesting and so much more sustainable and ethical because especially now with the meat shortages that we, that we're seeing in this country, people are realizing how backwards our 
our food industry is. It's ridiculous. Um, so I pitched it before, before COVID was actually in the main American headlines. Um, and as I was writing it, you know, the pandemic kind of started snowballing. And so I, it it didn't really take much to twist it because hunters, as you know, you're also self-reliant. Um, you have freezers full of food, like you said, of meat that you've shot. It's labeled well. It's, I don't know. It didn't take much to twist it to a COVID story. Um, but yeah, it actually, it, it came long before COVID did. It started long before COVID did. So you were already diving into the idea of people taking charge of, of what they're eating. Um, early on, before you had begun this article, did you have some assumptions and some feelings about hunting itself? Were you on board with this, yeah, I'm going to go after my food thing, or were you more on the other side of like, eh, it can't be about the food here? No, I'm always very pro being on the side of food, (laughs) you know, and sustainable ethical ways of getting our food. Um, I think ethically I probably should be a vegetarian, but I'm not. And that puts me in an awkward position because I'm not someone who hunts for my food. But um, I have – my father loves shooting, and so even as a little kid, I've been growing up. uh, We do a lot of clay shooting, and, you know, in the clay world, you also get the hunters, people who love to go bird shooting, deer hunting, things like that. So I had some, I guess, preconceived notions of what hunters were like, but I never dove into it very deeply. I was like, they seem nice. They're getting food. They're feeding their families. I don't necessarily want to shoot a deer, but good for you. Um, But this article really opened my eyes, and I have to say, I think I did drink the Kool-Aid a little bit. (laughs) It is. We we try to keep the doors open and, and invite more people in. But yeah, I'm glad to know that, you know, it did kind of open things up up for you. Um, uh, so yeah, you had already mentioned that you like this idea of being uh, sustainable um, as a means that, that we can get our, our food here, that it's not just a, a free-for-all. Were you aware of our, like, tag system and seasons and how all of the money that goes into that ends up turning around and going back into conserving those animals. Was that a system that was uh, you were enlightened by, uh, by, by talking to these folks? So that latter part was really interesting to me, especially talking to uh, Bob Williamson, who used to work for uh, Fish and Wildlife. And he was the one who told me, like, every permit that you buy, you know, and all of these fees that you're paying, they come back into it so that we can keep the animals healthy and the ecosystem strong. I was sort of aware of the fact that you couldn't just run around the woods with a gun like that. <laughs> Good. I'm glad that at least that was a, a, an underlying thing there. <laughs> I'm from New York, but I knew that much. Um, you know, and I, I also grew up doing something called drag fox hunting. So we actually never killed anything, but it was, uh, you know, horses and hounds and the whole thing. But in fox hunts that do a live hunt, you know, they're always espousing conservation and trying to keep populations healthy. And so I sort of knew that was sort of in the background. I kind of knew that, you know, the hunting is controlled so that you can't just decimate a population, but I didn't realize how controlled it was. And I didn't realize how well managed it was. And honestly, in Texas, I didn't realize how expensive it was. Yeah. There's some portions of the country where, yeah, you're paying 
like top yeah, dollar, top dollar just for the opportunity. That's not even putting anything mm-hmm. down. That's just uh, the uh, opportunity to go out and chase one. Absolutely. And I mean, it, I didn't realize that in Texas you have public land, but it, there's not that much of it. So most people have to pay to get onto private land and it's, it is very expensive and it's a real labor of love. Um, and I, I respect it a lot. I got to be honest with you. It, it was really eye-opening for me. I loved talking to people about this passion of theirs that they're sharing with their family and their friends. And it kind of leaches out into every other element, at least from what I could tell, of their lives. You know, getting food on the table for their family, taking care of their community seemed to be another very common thread between the three people I spoke to. Um, and I love that. I thought that was really important. Yeah. And I love the quote that you threw up uh, here from, from Holly, um, who is an industrial engineer student, um, also out of Texas. She says, I don't, I don't hunt things that I will not eat. You know, it's not a just go out and shoot something to shoot it and maybe utilize some of it. But to, the chance to utilize every bit of that animal um, that you get. I think culinarily too, it, it really does. You got to flex your muscles on that because, you know, the further you weigh, get from the hoof and the horn, you end up getting the prime cuts. You know, that's where our, we call them back straps and um, mm. our tenderloins. But then when you get to a shank on uh, a deer with as athletic as they are and how they move all the time, you really got to play with it. You really got to know, all right, this is going to be a low, slow endeavor. If I can go with a, you know, barbacoa on this or even get real fancy and try asobuco i think it's really funny that we've got some backwoods folks here in michigan that know what asobuco is you know that's like a refined dish out of uh out of italy so it's really neat to see these different folks that are like yeah yeah i'm not just taking things to take it it's we are going to use all of it i think it's important so that's a that quote from holly it's called a pull quote so the editors made it really big and I actually mentioned to you earlier, Holly got a lot of smoke for that. <laughs> There's a, a Facebook page that I met Holly through for Hunters. And people came after her for that, being like, well, frankly, I don't give a, you know, beep about whatever you think or blah, blah, blah. You know, population control this. And I agree. And, I, and Holly agrees, too. There are some animals that do need to be culled for population control. So here in Texas, it's open season on wild hog all the time. And I understand that. And I understand why. So she was talking about trophy hunting. Um, and, you know, everyone has their own opinions, I'm sure. But I just want to make that clear that <laughs> before this poor girl gets more heat from more hunters. Oh, gotcha. Well, she's in good company here. I tell you, just with, with any way of life, you're going to have people on either ends of the spectrum. And I get, that was one thing I was going to dive into here with you is this idea of, of trophy hunting. Um, I don't know, in, in our cir- in some of our circles here as hunters, it's like y- you go through the, y- you have to explain more. And, and some folks, they've conditioned themselves, they're, I'm taking one animal and I'm going to be very choosy on what that animal is. It's not going to be the first one that walks in front of me. I'm going to find the biggest and best animal. And if that means we call it eating a tag or not taking an animal that year, that's what it's going to take. And I know that if you come with a another another term that we use is if it's brown, it's down. As in the first <laughs> critter that walks in front of you, you're going to take that. And that's going to be what's going to get your tag. And you get people heated. And it's 
we're all passionate about the same thing, but it's amazing how these different little tribes will come off different areas, and you'll get folks on the culinary side that are say, "Yeah, I'm going to call it. I'm going to take it." I, I I put my hat on that uh, that hook. There is, you know, what I've got a limited amount of time. I need to fill the freezer, so I'm going to I'm going to be the if it's in front of me, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to be blessed with that opportunity. If I want the big critter, I'm going to have to wait for that. But things come, you know, food comes first. You know, a hundred percent. And like I said, I'm not a hunter, um, but I understand that everyone has their own, you know, their own ethics and their own mentality when it comes to these things. But like anything, I think everyone needs a little bit of grace, right? Exactly. We should all have the opportunity to explain our point of views and uh, instead of jumping down other people's throats. And I think hunting, and maybe it comes from the fact that hunters have a bad rap you know, outside of the community that they're kind of used to having to be very defensive. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I found for me as a non, you know, I'm this girl from New York who had a weird English accent when I first moved here, but people couldn't, once I showed the people I was speaking to that I was open, that I'm not here to attack anybody, they couldn't have been more, you know, warm and kind and just really passionate about this sport. So I think, I don't know, would you even call it a sport? Is that hobby lifestyle it yeah it is a sporting i i refer to it as a lifestyle you know i've really tried to take everything into my own hands as far as you know bringing bringing food into my table and it's become a lifestyle now from that i've really enjoyed the sport of archery and mm. that i've been able to increase on and so i look at like archery or even marksmanship with a rifle or a shotgun i look at that as being a sporting thing but I think what we're doing is pursuing animals for for sustenance. Uh, we want to give the animal a sporting chance. I would consider it more of a lifestyle at that point to be like, this is this is what I do as a person. And yes, I do get enjoyment from it. But I think the sporting aspect of it is, you know, I want to give the animal fair chase. But I, at the same time, when I have that opportunity, I want to be practiced and that's where I think the sport comes in of archery of marksmanship in there anyway yeah that came up time and time again for me people talking about ethical shots although I will say not for the trophy I spoke to one trophy hunter um off the record and he couldn't give two hoots about ethical shots (laughs) he really that was just not in his, that he just didn't care. You know, he was going to put it down at any angle that was coming in. And if it was far out, hey, that was the shot he was going to take. That was the shot. I think he said something along the lines of, uh, you know, all I really need is the head. And I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I guess, like I mentioned, there are lots of different tribes in our own little, uh, of course. <laughs> little lifestyle. I want them in as close as possible because I don't want, I want every variable taken out and, you know, I'm trying to, I want this critter to, to not suffer because the more that it does suffer, the more that it then puts my meat at risk. Cause now we've oh. got adrenaline yeah, running go. and Oof. I don't want to go have to chase this thing. Yeah. And I also will... just, I mean, for me as a, you know, I don't know, snowflake over here, you just don't want anybody to suffer, you know? Exactly. One bad day. One bad moment. Just wanted to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review, 
uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? Email us at Huntivore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company, who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. Well, I'm going to then back up, because you had mentioned uh, just earlier in our conversation here that uh, by your ethics and by your standards you should be considered, or you should be looking at vegetarianism. I really should. (laughs) The elephant in the room right now is meat. Um, What was your upbringing uh, that caused... Carnivorous. (laughs) What? Oh, it was a carnivorous background. My dad is 65 years old and to this day is a meat and potatoes man. You know, you can cook him whatever fancy meal you want to cook him, but if you just give him a steak and a baked potato, that's it. That's like prime it's a happy clam right there yeah that's that's his dream that's a happy man so Um, then was it from your travels as you you know left home you know you came from this carnivorous background um where there was always meat in the house um but what where did you start to uh decide you know what i'm gonna set i'm gonna set some standards here for myself I got to be honest with you it was when i was a very little girl and i remember sitting at our our table with my sister Both of us have actually flirted with vegetarianism for most of our lives. Um, She went vegan for a little while. Now she, you know, neither of us are vegetarians now. We're ethical carnivores. (laughs) Um, Just to be sort of hipster about it. But I remember being a kid and and proudly announcing to my parents that I was a vegetarian now. I think I had just put the connection between chicken nuggets and chickens together. And, And my dad said, then leave. Like this is a meat eating house. That's what we do here. Um, which wasn't maybe the most sensitive response, but, uh, the first time I became a vegetarian properly was in Hong Kong because I lived in this area called Mong Kok, which has a lot of wet markets in it. Wet markets I want to clarify are different from, um, the animal markets that we've been hearing a lot about from Wuhan. So wet markets are where people, they're like a farmer's market with more hanging carcasses. So it's where people go to do their grocery shopping. You get your, your produce and there are butchers there. And I would go for these runs in the morning and, you know, I'd be ducking and dodging pigs, hearts and trotters and, you know, halves of, of, uh, slaughtered pigs, but it's hot in Hong Kong. So there was a real smell to it as well. So that I was vegetarian for that after that for about six months. And then I started working for a restaurant company, and that changed. They weren't getting their uh, their carcasses from the street down there in the in the hot, humid weather, were they? No, no, gosh, no. They're they're an amazing restaurant group, and you know they get top of the line everything. Of course, I don't really have an issue with. I mean, I don't know if that meat was maybe in the best state because it was hot. It was just for me, like literally almost smacking into a pig's heart on a hook. I was like, this is too much for me. But now I, as I've gotten older, I really come to respect the fact that 
this protein is available for people at a reasonable price and they use every element of the animal. I mean, you can get, this is going to be a little gross. You can actually get pig face. So the skin that has been separated from the skull and that's there for people to buy. And I love that. I love that. It's not going to waste. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. I bet you that would make some interesting chicharrones. Uh, I was thinking that I was like, it must be so tasty and chewy. <laughs> yeah, at that point. But yeah, like the same thing is this this face is looking back at you. So it is one of those things that you cannot disregard that this was an animal at one point exactly. because it's looking back at you. Exactly. And I have always, I also grew up on a horse farm, a little horse farm. So, you know, I was always that little kid that was rescuing bunnies that's, you know, whose nests had been gotten into. And like hunters, you know, I really loved animals and, um, you know, I have actually been invited to go in the fall to Lano to do a shoot. So I'm curious to see how I'll feel. Um, because I'm definitely someone who'd rather just like have all the animals as pets or like touch them and love them <laughs> than shoot them. But, um, you know, I do agree with hunting now. I really do. I think it has a place. And if more people were able to approach their food in this way with the system but that hunters do we'd be a much healthier society i am in full agreement with you the selfish side of me is like i don't i don't want anybody else out there going yeah, after stay the same away from my, yeah exactly but at the same deer. time maybe that's our bad pr and i know you've done some work in pr and we've already touched on maybe a couple of things here um as we try to promote our lifestyle and maybe we do come across a little defensive because either we feel like we're being infringed upon or attacked from, from every other direction. I mean, here we are in 2020. It feels like anything goes. And, you know, folks that are saying that hunting, we shouldn't do that. And how can we, as a hunting group, and I know we just touched on one of those things, is how can we better our PR? How can we help send our story to society to say, hey, folks, we're not... We're not trying to exclude people. We're not trying to just keep on doing what we're doing. There's a reason why we go through all the trouble of practice and of freezing our butts out here every fall, and it's for getting protein for our families. How can we improve ourselves? You know, that's such a loaded question because it also depends on what audience you're looking at. So I'll use New York as an example. New York has very strict gun control laws, and upstate New York, you know, you can it's common to find hunters, but say on Long Island or Manhattan, no, you're just a bunch of white lunatics in the woods, which isn't true. It's just the stereotype. Um, I know that there's a book out, I think it's called white spaces, black faces. And I might have got, have that wrong, but it's about, um, hunting about how black people don't feel comfortable hunting. And I'm not black myself, so I really can't speak to this experience, but you know, they talk about how it is a predominantly white sport and how, you know, how can we change this? How can we grow this? How can we make it more inclusive? So I think it's all about everyone telling their own authentic story. So, you know, Holly, the Holly Hearn, the girl that I interviewed for the article, hunting has been something she's done with her family. She loves it. She loves the act of butchering as well. She loves cooking. She's a wonderful cook, but it's something that she did to be closer to her dad. That's a very human story. Another person I interviewed, Bob, uh, had a medical condition. You know, Bob's, I think, almost 80 years old, so he's also just been hunting from, as a lifestyle. But, you know, he can't eat, like, fatty cows, so he has, you know, venison. And that's 
another very interesting story. I was taken by the respect that hunters have for the animals. Like we spoke about, you know, using every part of them, taking ethical shots, managing populations, not just, well, not Wiley Coyote. What's that little cowboy Looney Tune called? Oh, um, Yosemite Sam. Yosemite, yeah, not just like Yosemite <laughs> Samming it up. Or what's um, the other one? Um, oh my goodness, Elmer Fudd. He's the uh, Elmer Fudd. Sorry, Yosemite Sam one, is yeah. Like, yeah, he's the rootin' tootin' guy with the, with the guns. But uh, Elmer Fudd, that is definitely the the persona we get is the hunter going after uh, either Bugs or Daffy, and just he didn't seem to have all the pieces together. Yeah, definitely missing a few marbles there. But no, it's an, you know it also has a different reputation in different places, which is interesting. Uh, in England, it's actually quite an elite thing to do. You know, you're going to go up, or I shouldn't say in England, in, in the UK. If you go up to Scotland, you're going to go deer stalking. That's very expensive, and that's for posh people. Whereas in America, I feel like it has a, a different connotation, like more like a redneck connotation, I guess. I can agree with that. I, is that would you, yeah, I was going to say, does that make sense? Because I'm an outsider looking in. It's always different because you're in it, you know? So you might be like, no, we're all really nice people. We're all accountants. I, I have I try to keep a good scope on myself, and I'm currently sitting with quite a haircut right now. I decided with COVID <laughs> that I would go for a mullet, so I'm definitely into the, uh, <laughs> I'm definitely into the redneck Even stereotype. Uh, but I would even hey, say people collect. there's nothing wrong with being a redneck. <laughs> exactly. I like we're connected to our environment, and I think that you know the sun beating down on the back of us. That's where that red comes from. So we, I th- I would say you're absolutely correct. But yeah, we're we're just connected to our environment, and that's yeah, being that way sets off a a tone for others. Here, Nick. Here's a little pop quiz for you, and by all means, edit it out if you get it wrong. Okay. <laughs> what what phase of the moon are we in right now? Do you know? Ooh, that I don't know. Oh, interesting. Okay, so it's a full moon, but I have noticed, I I asked that to a few other people I was talking to, the hunters all knew. Really, they knew, yeah. Some folks really tune in to where that moon is at. Um, But it's just part of them being in their environment, being, A, being outside all the time, like, yes, just happening to notice, and also, yeah, being attuned to their environment, to their world, to their nature. I'd have no idea. <laughs> well, yeah, I do feel a little embarrassed now that I don't know uh, what phase of the moon it is. Out. But at the same time, like, you know, I'm I'm constantly, I mean, yeah, I'm looking at the weather forecast and stuff. But at the same time, I I almost know a little bit more about what the weather and what's going on just because I've been around it and been in it. So mm-hmm. looking out the window, I get more of a perception. Or even, yeah, just sitting outside, I get more of a perception than what I'm going to get from you know, someone telling me what the figure's going to be from a computer. Right. And now when you walk outside, when I walk through the woods, it is, it's like what, like trying to read a book in French. I'm like, oh, this is so beautiful, but I don't know what anything is. I imagine when you go for a walk in the woods, you're very familiar. You might recognize some of the trees that you're seeing, some of the animals, the birds, the plants, things like that, right? Absolutely. My... My wife, I mean, she loves to go on a walk with me and go on on different hikes with me. At the same time, she does have to say, hey, we're just going on a hike. We're not going to go off on a tangent where we're going to try and find morel (laughs) mushrooms. Or I don't need need a speech or a lecture on why this is going on. I'm just merely noting that something is going on. So, yes, that's very true. 
also when we drive places, I, I'm constantly looking at fields. I'm constantly look. You know, I would never. That's not my field. I, I'm not going to go to it. We might even be an hour away from home, but I'm already looking at the wood line and I'm already finding critters and yelling turkey or yelling deer, and <laughs> freaking her out, thinking like, "Is there a deer crossing a road?" No, no, it's it's way over there, about 400 yards. It's 100 like, yards away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I so, think that's incredible. And, you know, Bob, another person I interviewed, Bob Williamson, he said, if you put most people, if you took away like grocery stores for most people, you'd all be dead. And I was like, absolutely. I don't know how to find water. I don't know where a moral mushroom lives. I can't see a deer that's 50 yards away. <laughs> You're much more in tune. And I really respect that. Well, I appreciate that. And I am, I'm stoked to have that you, you wrote that article and it did. As soon as I saw that, it was just kind of like a fist bump in the air, just being like, yes, someone has noticed why we do things. And it, it almost took, it, it did, it took a pandemic for people to turn and be like, well, why aren't they freaking out? Why aren't they going to buy a freezer and fill it with, with meat that we're now scrambling to get? Oh, cause they've already had the freezer and they've already had the meat. And they've taken it sustainably rather than try to crash the food system that we have now. Absolutely. Look, there's been a massive trend. I see it every single day when I check the news. There's some new story about the rise of homesteading and, you know, these feed and grain stores can't keep their chicks in stock because people are, they're flying off the shelves and these panicked people are buying all these little chicks and ducks because they want eggs or they want to raise chickens. And, you know, I think it's going to be a great time for anyone who runs a hunting school but, the, you know, these skills that you have, I'm sure, have been honed over either a lifetime or at least years. Yeah. there's uh, when, you, when you first step into the woods, you are definitely at the woods. Is, uh, it's in charge. And then even on top of that, you really respect how um, evolved or how uh, in tune these animals are. Let's just take the, the mm. white-tailed deer. It is. I have to practice all summer and to get to the ranges that I can even uh, shoot at because I want to get, I want to be able to shoot as far as I can accurately because I may only get to be within 40 yards of one of these white tailed deer. I have to put on clothes that look like the environment. I have to put, you know, color on my face. I have to hide as well as I can. And that's not even enough. Sometimes as they walk up, they have a sixth or even a seventh sense. It just tells them, Hey, look up in the tree and there's the hunter. And you're like, I did everything right, but it didn't matter because they were able to pick us out. Those first couple years of being picked out of being <laughs> basically humiliated up in a tree by some animal that I think I am smarter than, and to just be ridiculed by it, it's like, oh, it it really kind of drove that that game, that sport that we mentioned earlier. It's I consider it a lifestyle, but at the same time, it's like we are definitely outmatched, and it takes the practice, it takes the years of work to make all those pieces go together. You know, one day you're not just going to wake up and say, hey, I'm going to go shoot something. Well, you could, but you're going to need a high-powered <laughs> rifle to do it. <laughs> But, you know, that's the thing that I am a little concerned about. I'm grateful that we have a lot more people trying to pay attention now, where food is coming from, you know, how they can sustain themselves. But a lot of people are going to get knocked on their asses. <laughs> it's not – there's a an idea, I think, especially for people who haven't shot before, 
that you hold a gun and you're immediately James Bond and you're going to hit everything. That's not true. There's practice that goes goes into that. You have, you can't just go into the woods and shoot a deer. You know, you need to be able to age them. You need to be able to track to a certain degree. Um, and I'm hoping that people who are coming into this lifestyle now are going to approach it in a healthy mindset of this is going to take a while, not just like root and toot and let's go in and like, you know, bag a buck. Yeah. I've been trying to bag a buck for a long time and it still hasn't happened. (laughs) I've had a dry spell. (laughs) I've heard, it's funny. I didn't, somebody else mentioned that to me. Some, there's like some elusive buck on the property that he hunts. He's got a lease on. And he's like, I've been trying to get that thing for like two years. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't hunt. I didn't know that that was a thing. So you learn so much. But I just hope people come into this with practice and with respect. Well, excellent. Well, hey, Sarah, I'm coming into uh, the crescendo of our episode oh. here. And this is the two-dish breakdown. Now, you did allude earlier that you said, now, I I have traveled the world, and I have tasted many, many amazing foods, and yet you yourself are are still a novice when it comes to the culinary culinary art. I burn everything. (laughs) Everything. (laughs) Well, beautiful, because in Wild Game, that's one thing you don't want to do, so always undercook (laughs) it. (laughs) Okay, good to know, good to know. Um, well, I shouldn't say undercook it. Uh, rare is probably your medium rare, rare yeah. medium rare is where you want to go. Um, but I want to get your take on some some different ideas. My first one here is what was your first taste of wild game, or at least your most memorable taste? And could you describe what that dish was? Okay, so I have been thinking about this a lot. Um, my father and his gun club, they do a wild game dinner every year that I was always promised to go to, but never made it to. And apparently everything is delicious, but I've never been there. So my first, I don't even know if this counts, but it would have been alligator in Florida. Whoa. Um, So that would be my first. And I remember being really intrigued by how mild the flavor was. Um, And I must've been about six or seven. And then probably the most memorable dish was in Scotland. It was my housemate's birthday. And he brought, he made us all a pheasant curry from a shoot that he had done it with his family. And I was so excited. He's a wonderful chef. You know, he had on his gap year or something, went to France and learned how to cook and blah, 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 blah. And we're all about to sit down and eat and we're all dressed really fancy and we're about to have this curry. And he goes, bite carefully. (laughs) (laughs) I had never been in that, I've never been in that position before where there might've been some shot in the food. And I actually found that very interesting. It yeah. made me pay a lot more attention. I have a great story with that. I I bagged a couple rabbits and I made um, some rabbit and dumpling. Um, so basically, you just cook down oh. the rabbit and you, you shred it. Um, and that was the opportunity that I was going to then pull out all of the said shot that was that was in there. And uh-huh. you know, without a doubt, you always seem to miss one or or two one or two and my wife bit down on one and i have yet to have her try rabbit again she was really like i don't and then she goes it's not the rabbit's fault she's like i am just really hesitant (laughs) you know like darn it oh that's such a shame i know i've had i mean she adores venison and you know we've we've been able to to do a lot of that but yeah it's always one of those things like i'm just like all right 
that one of these days I got to make sure that it's a clean shot and that I can give her the guarantee. But yeah, until then, I'm like, oh man, I've kind of ruined Rabbit for her. <laughs> that really is a shame because Rabbit's wonderful. Oh, um, it's such great stuff. But look, no one wants to break it too. <laughs> Gotcha. Now the the gator. I am going to go back to that. Was it a lighter meat or was it like a, a darker darker meat? It was really light. Um, I mean, gosh, this was over twenty years ago now. But no, it was very light. I remember my father saying it tastes just like chicken, which is what everyone says about everything. <laughs> um, and I didn't think it tasted like chicken, but I mean, it was in a sauce. But the meat itself, I almost yeah it it was very light looking. It did almost look like a chicken. Um, and it was sort of cubed. Um, yeah, I'm not really remembering this very well. But no, I was. it was so non-offensive. You know, I wouldn't say it was great. I wouldn't go rushing back for it. I don't remember it having like a massive, a real distinct flavor either. It was just sort of mild and and light, which for such um, an imposing animal. I was going to say, it's almost an oxymoron there for this light and delicate meat coming off of, yeah, basically short dinosaur that likes to just mow down on other critters yeah exactly you'd think it would be and also you know carnivores aren't supposed to taste nice it's but they're supposed to be kind of like tough and chewy right that's why we don't eat things that eat meat we like vegetarians that's true um, i know there's, no, a, it was there's a group out there that really they're they're trying to up for the for puma or mountain lion they're saying it really has a, te- a tendency to be like pork and well we don't have any we don't have a season here in, in Michigan, but at the same time, there's always that like carnivorous switch where if I do miss, mm. I am now gone from the hunted or from the hunter to the hunted. Yeah. I'm, I'm not quite ready for that step yet. <laughs> well, that's the, you know, that's the game, isn't it? Or the, the Hey, there you go. Uh, that's the true chance. sport. <laughs> I've seen that online too. I'm in a member of, uh, I'm a member of Hank Shaw's Facebook group, hunt, gather, cook. And I have noticed a lot of people going for the big cats. And that really surprised me. But they, people who like cat, love cat. That's very true. I Somewhere in there is a Tiger King reference or joke, but I can't quite oh. find it yet. <laughs> did she do it? Did she do it? Do you think she did? Oh, she totally did. She totally did. <laughs> <laughs> Man, sardine oil. I'm going to start looking for some for my next husband. <laughs> All right. Now our last one. Uh, is going to be, this one's going to take a little bit of thought on your hands. Now, you know, you can rely on some of your, uh, your chef friends to help you, but you're going to have to paint out what this is going to be. Um, you're looking to impress on a date night with a certain gentleman, and you're going to make this meal in-house or at least with the help of your, your chef friends. Um, and you only have wild game at your disposal. So, you have your choice of venison, boar, or fish, and how are you going to prepare it? Or how are they going to help you prepare it? Much, much more accurate. Right. So I cheated on this, and I asked a professional chef friend from London. His name is Phil Peters, and I asked Holly Hearn from Beaumont, Texas. <laughs> um, it's been a long time since I've been on a date. I'm going to be very honest with you. So I've sort of forgotten what that's like. Um, but... Holly said, Holly opted for this rubbed venison loin with, you know, a cocoa and chili rub and mashed potatoes and roasted asparagus and a beautiful dewberry bourbon pan sauce, which sounds lovely, but I, it sounds so delicious, but I feel like on a date, it's almost, 
I feel like I would, I would just get messy. <laughs> right like especially when you're a little nervous um, that's true well, i'm just thinking like i would eat so much of it like i would definitely be like well date over i'm gonna take a nap <laughs> well that's the other thing right i mean I, i'm all for like this has been lovely please leave i want to go sleep <laughs> but uh you know phil the the chef from london was talking about a smoked shoulder like doing barbecue bites as mini sliders and i love that idea i love having something that's more um less fork and knife, more fingers, you know, and hands and yes, kind of ups the messy quotient, but it kind of casuals everything down a little bit. Very true. Very Um, true. He also suggested roasting a whole rack, uh, on an open fire and grill, but I would burn my entire house down. So (laughs) if he's not coming over for a date, We'll probably stick to the sliders. There you go. Hey, I like that idea. Just kind of like, and it's, you know, especially, well, we can't go to them anymore right now, at least concerts. I was going to say after a concert or after, you know, night on the town, you've already had a couple beers in you. You could really use just something, you know, satisfying in your in your belly and a slider just sounds like it would fill the spot. Just, just I right. feel like no one's going to want to date me after this. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I'm going to say, hey, how how can we get a hold of you? And, you know, where can we find you? And I'm pretty sure you're going to get some gentlemen going to be like, hot dang, if she's going to make sliders, I'm all in. <laughs> or if she's going to get somebody else to make us sliders. There you, you go. You can find me on Instagram. Instagram is the best place to find me. Um, my handle is very creative. It's my name, at Sarah underscore Engstrand. And, um, yeah, as long as you're not creepy, I will respond. <laughs> Well, Sarah, this has been a wonderful time. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of, I'm going to have you hold on for a second. I'm going to send folks out. Hey, folks, I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, it's somebody outside of our circle, somebody who's not a hunter and someone who doesn't necessarily live and die in the kitchen. But to get a chance to be able to look at our own selves, figure out how we fit into this whole big world, and to really appreciate that, you know what, we're in the midst of a food pandemic as much as a virus pandemic and we're going to be okay and how we can shed or spread that message to the rest of the world. So folks keep on uh, spreading the good news and always keep your knives sharp.